Hello, my name is Ran, and this is the Flow Artist Podcast. Every episode, we interview inspiring movers, thinkers, and teachers about how they find their flow and much, much more. If you practice or teach yoga, movement, and meditation, then this is the podcast for you. I've got a lot to talk about in this episode, so I'm going to jump right into it. Today's episode is a recorded conversation between myself, co-host Joe Stewart, and guest Anne Swanson. Anne Swanson is a yoga teacher, holds a master's degree in yoga therapy, and is the author of the recently released book, Science of Yoga. Joe and I were lucky enough to get an advanced digital copy of the book, and we both loved it. It's full of great information and fantastic illustrations, and it really marries together the worlds of science and yoga quite wonderfully. I genuinely wish I had a copy of this book when I was doing my teacher training, and we ordered a physical copy once it was released, so I can definitely recommend that you do the same. I'll leave a link to the book in the show notes on our website at podcast.flowartist.com. We had a great conversation with Anne and we learned many things from her, including what it's like growing up the daughter of a NASA scientist, her inspirations for writing the book, and much more. Now, before we get on with the conversation, I just want to ask you to like, share, or subscribe to this podcast if you enjoy listening to it. It would really help us build a larger audience and give us even more motivation for doing this thing that we love so much. Anyhow, that is more than enough from me. Let's meet Anne Swanson. Good morning. Thank you so much for meeting with us today, and So good to get the chance to talk to you. We're really excited. We've checked out your book, The Science of Yoga, and we actually both want to get a copy as soon as we can. So perhaps you could just start by telling us a little bit about your background and where you grew up. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm I'm glad to talk about the book because I, I really enjoyed writing about it and glad to share with everybody. So I lived in Virginia growing up and I always had an interest in art and I would draw and stretch and spend a lot of time alone. And I don't think I knew at the time that I was doing a lot of yoga-like practices with my alone time. I was also really curious and, and spending a lot of time reading and searching. And like I had a toy microscope, I'd look at like bugs and things, marking my interest in biology as I obviously went into studying biology later on. So that was my background. I mean, I ended up going to art school and my undergraduate is in art. My family is filled with scientists, lots of PhDs in my family. My dad's a NASA scientist. And however, I just showed an aptitude for the visual arts and ended up going to school for that and was very encouraged by my family. And my brother was pre-med in school and encouraged in that direction. It's funny because we kind of ended up switching after a while. (laughs) After art school, I ended up doing pre-med and and studying science and working in cadaver lab and going in in this biology, anatomy, physiology direction. And my brother is now a comedy writer in LA. Oh, wow. (laughs) And so just to wind back a little bit, what was it like growing up the daughter of a NASA scientist? Yeah, I mean, in my household, there was always like SAT words on the fridge that we had to incorporate into our, our dinner conversation. Go ahead and try incorporating lugubrious into your <laughs> dinner conversation. And 
anytime we had questions, it was always go to the encyclopedia, like go to the globe in the living room and inquire and like figure it out. So that was something I was always encouraged by all of my family. But I was also very encouraged to to go in my direction with art. It wasn't, it was like whatever I was interested in, they encouraged. Well, interestingly enough, my parents are both scientists as well. And I went to art school before I became a yoga teacher. And do you think there's just some shared commonality about like a fascination with the world and with ourselves and with how things evolve that's kind of common to science and art and yoga? Yeah, I think it's curiosity. I think it's about exploring ourselves and how to, to understand the world. Yeah. And so when did yoga come into the picture? I guess less of your own self practices that maybe you were already meditating while you were creating and while you're looking at bugs under a microscope. Like when did you go to your first actual class? Yeah. So in college, I went to yoga classes and it was just popular at that time period. I remember going because I was very stressed out with school and Mm. it was this nice, time to de-stress and come into presence. But I mean, for me, I didn't quite get it in college. <laughs> like I remember lying there in Shavasana and, you know, we're supposed to be relaxing. And I had my eyes wide open looking around like, this is so weird. I have so much to do. And I just want to get home and finish my work. We've already done our asana practice. So it took me a while to like get into the meditative practices of it. It was very physical that brought me to it at first. But now it's it's really the meditative practices that spark my interest and that I practice so, so consistently. And were there any key teachers that helped you kind of get to those deeper layers? There was actually a local teacher that my mom and I used to go to, John Pace, and he taught at a gym locally, but he had many, many years of experience and he would answer all my questions after class. So there's a lot of more local teachers that inspired me. And then later on, when I when I really dove into my journey, there were a lot of teachers in my, my graduate program for yoga therapy that inspired my journey and continue to be now. And so nice you practice with your mom as well. I do that too. <laughs> yeah, my mom and I actually go to yoga retreats together. We were just Aww. at Kripalu. It's really an amazing thing. She started going to my class a few years ago. And then when I moved away from Virginia, she kept going. She still goes every Wednesday. And she says her secretary at work is always like, you need to go to yoga. It is time. She <laughs> <laughs> like, notices a big difference. So. Aww, nice one, mom. <laughs> yeah. What led you towards wanting to actually teach yoga? I think like a lot of yoga teachers, it's just a way to deepen my own practice, to be able to share it and to prepare for classes. I was one of those people that would have my notes all typed out and highlighted of what I was going to teach and really spend a lot of time preparing for it, practicing on my own, feeling it in my body. And I think that that preparatory time really makes teaching rich for me and a a way to learn for myself. And so you've described yourself as a heart-centered healer and a science nerd, and often we're kind of presented with these as two diametrically opposed points of view. How do you reconcile this within yourself, or is this just who you are? 
I guess it has been many years of reconciling it going back and forth. Like when I was in art school, I was very artistic and really in that direction. Then I remember when I was doing all the pre-med courses and I was working in a cadaver lab and tutoring anatomy and, and studying massage in night school, I was very analytical and logical. And sometimes I'd get way in my head with that. And so there's been time periods in my life where I've gone back and forth between the two extremes. But now I feel like they're really just two sides of the same coin, that spirituality and science don't have to be separate, that there's a sense of curiosity and inquisitiveness that comes with both of them. Mm. And I don't think that being a heart-centered healer and being caring about compassion and connection has to be separate than, than logic and science and needing evidence and needing a sense of knowing. I don't think they need to be separate. And you have a Master of Science in Yoga Therapy, which is most definitely a combination of these two worlds. Perhaps you could describe what that training was like. Yeah, so I did a Master's of Science in Yoga Therapy at Maryland University of Integrative Health. And I was actually in the very first cohort of like the first graduating class of that program. And it was really a phenomenal experience looking back because those people had been all waiting for this program for many years. So I had such a phenomenal group of colleagues in my class. And it was a combination of research and reading the scientific literature, reading from master teachers, and also like practice and philosophy and experiencing it in our own bodies. So it was this really great meld of all these different learning styles. And ultimately, like it had a clinical aspect to it also. So we would practice yoga therapy in a clinical setting and have mentors. And that that really gave me the confidence. And I think many of my colleagues and student classmates, the confidence to do this work in the world and in all different ways. Oh, it sounds so great. And I noticed that one of the things that you specialize in is yoga for arthritis. Do you choose a specialty as you're studying or how did that work? We're encouraged to choose a specialty, which I know is really hard for a lot of people, but actually my specialty chose me. So for many years when I was teaching yoga, I was teaching even like I was in my early 20s, I was teaching retirees. And I always knew when I was teaching that I wanted to work in retirement communities. So I started teaching in in retirement communities, in the dementia unit, in the stroke recovery areas of the retirement communities, and doing that like nearly full-time for several years. So that was the work I was doing. And I was teaching yoga and Tai Chi and giving massages. And I knew that there must be some extra training I could do specifically for yoga for arthritis. And so I Google searched it and I found my mentor 
Dr. Stephanie Munoz, who created the program Yoga for Arthritis, based off of nearly a decade of research she did at Johns Hopkins University on yoga for arthritis and its positive effects. And so I did that program with her. And it was a weekend program, 34 hours. And during that time, she just casually mentioned that within a few weeks, she would start teaching at the very first program for yoga therapy, the first master's of science program for yoga therapy. And I was like, wow, that's what I've been looking for. And so I know, I think I was the very last person to sign up for the program. And she became my mentor. And over the next couple of years, I learned her program and then I started teaching her teacher training. So it's a training for yoga teachers who want to specialize in arthritis. And I started traveling across the U.S. teaching that with her. And now I I teach it at Kripalu, a retreat center here in Massachusetts and a variety of other places. So it's really kind of chose me. And so could you give us a little bit of an insight as to how yoga can be so helpful for this condition? Yoga is a whole person approach to well-being. So many people come to yoga for arthritis thinking it's all about modifying the poses to make it more accessible. And it absolutely is. I believe if you can breathe, you can do yoga. So making sure it's accessible and that you can use a chair, use the wall, do things that are safe for your joints, for the longevity and sustainability of your joints. So that physical aspect of it uh, is very important. But there's other aspects of being, as we know with yoga, looking at the koshas or these, these different qualities and aspects of being, there's deeper aspects like your energy level. Arthritis really affects your energy. And you can change that through breath practices, through meditation practices. Chronic pain really affects your energy. So we can use these tools of yoga to affect our energy. Also, our mind, our mental, and all all these different aspects deeper into the spiritual aspects of being. So there's this sense of overcoming when you're dealing with chronic pain and you lose a lot of your, you lose a lot of your independence and there's this change you have to deal with. So I think that spiritual component really comes into it is how do you navigate those changes in life? So it's really this whole person well-being. Oh, it sounds wonderful. And I'm sure that the people that you work with would so appreciate that whole person perspective. It's not just about a specific exercise to make their knee feel better. It's really about how you can help everything in their life feel better with this practice. Yes, yes. And so when did the inspiration to write the book come in? And I'm also really interested in how you envision the reader using the book. Is it kind of more for yoga teachers or is this a book that you wrote for everyone? (laughs) It's interesting you asked the inspiration to write the book because I kind of had a seed planted in my mind to write a book at a a yoga retreat with my mom, actually, Ah. with Baxter Bell and Melina Meza. And Melina, both of them have books, really excellent books, Yoga for Healthy Aging. And then Melina has several books of her own. And Melina was encouraging me to start writing a book. 
And we were brainstorming and just starting to think about that, planting that seed. And I mean, the book I came up with was going to be super simple, ways to modify your yoga practices at home using like (laughs) pillows and props around the house. Like it was going to be a very simple, practical book because I work with people actually over Zoom around the world. And everybody that I work with, with yoga they're in their home. So they're using the props around their house, just, you know, their couch as a prop for the wall. So I wanted to make that practical for them. So it was a very simple project I was thinking of. And then, you know, that kind of took the back burner. I was planning it in the back of my head thinking, oh, I'm going to write this book. And then suddenly I got an offer to write a book. That, you know, obviously I would never have imagined that I could write this book, which involves a team of designers and illustrators, but Random House, Penguin Random House, DK specifically, they found an article I wrote. An editor read some of my articles, looked at my website, saw that I had studied anatomy and physiology, that I tutored and taught anatomy and physiology at different levels, and that I have the credentials with my Master of Science in Yoga Therapy to to work on this project. They looked at my website and they shot me an email with a proposal. So I didn't really come up with this book, but I really helped shape it. There were things that when they came to me with it, I was like, oh, we need to renegotiate that. It's not all about the poses and it being the perfect angle at the joint, you know, Mm -hmm. it's, it doesn't work that way. Every body is different. Let's talk about how it's different for everybody. It's not exactly the same. There's no perfect pose. There's no perfect alignment. So we had a lot of discussions like that and even negotiating what, what image was on the cover that originally was scorpion pose which I I didn't even want to cover in the book. Obviously, as a yoga therapist, I wanted a lot more gentler poses. And so we had a lot of back and forth to get some of these more gentle poses like cat-cow and that sort of thing in the book. And a, a little more gentle pose on the cover also. So when they sent me the proposal, it it's for everybody. But I'd say a very educated, inquisitive yogi. Like you don't have to know anatomy and physiology. This book talks about it at a very basic level, but you may be interested in it. You know that you can figure it out if you get those basics and you have the images to help you. So it's really for any yoga practitioner who's wondering like, well, what's really happening beneath my skin and bones? What's really happening in my mind? Wait, my teacher said that if I elongate my exhale, it's going to help me relax. What did did she mean by that? Like what what do these claims, why do I have to have my knee over my ankle? Is that really necessary? These sort of questions that any yoga practitioner, any avid yoga practitioner may have. So I think that that's one audience. I definitely think that another big audience is yoga teachers and yoga teacher training. And I I teach anatomy, physiology, and research science for yoga teacher training. So I think that that's another great audience. And then I think anybody in healthcare that is interested in how yoga melds with healthcare. So anybody with that science background that maybe wants to know, like, how would this fit into 
like, for example, if you're a psychologist, how does yoga affect the brain and mental well-being? What is some of the research on that? I have that outlined in the Q&A section. Or, you know, if you work with chronic pain, there's some research highlighted there. How does yoga therapy work with the, the medical model? So there's, uh, I think that there's that other aspect where I'm really hoping to help bring yoga more into the mainstream audience and to open more people's minds by seeing, well, it's not all about you know, woo woo, there's evidence to support a lot of these claims and a lot of it just makes sense. Hello, Ran here, just popping in to let you know about some plans Joe and I have for the very near future. We are planning to launch a Patreon very soon. Now, once we've launched in a couple of weeks, you'll be able to support the podcast for as little as a dollar a month. One of the reasons we want to do this is so that we can afford to transcribe our episodes for the deaf and hard of hearing. Now, reliable transcription services can cost as much as a dollar a minute, and for an hour-long episode, that's starting to get expensive. Now, we're still working on what rewards we want to offer, so if there's something you'd like from us, let us know. You can email us at podcastflowartist.com or join the Flow Artist Podcast community on Facebook and drop us a line. We would love to hear from you. Okay, that's all I have for now. Let's get back to our conversation with Anne. One thing that I really get from your book as well is just how fascinating our bodies are. And I think that's one aspect that it doesn't matter what background you're coming from, everyone can get something out of that. And like the beautiful visual storytelling or illustrations in the book are amazing for that because often it's an anatomical diagram or a photo from a microscope or something that's absolutely evidence-based. And then you weave in how this relates to the more subtler aspects of yoga. And I think it's such a, it's very much of this time where yoga seems to be evolving from a more lineage-based practice into quite an evidence-based practice. And there seems like there's quite a few people who are managing to do that without losing touch of what's really amazing and so powerful about this practice, because there are all of these other layers and some of them are harder to do an experiment on and document. And I really love the way that you've kind of talked about those aspects as well. I'm wondering if there were any times where you've seen a practice work, like you've experienced that with the people that you've worked with, but it was actually kind of challenging to find a reference or a study or some kind of documentation of it that felt like you could include it in the book. A lot of the research that is out there for yoga is pretty broad in that it's like this well-rounded yoga practice, including the postures, chanting, meditation, all these aspects of yoga, it helps with relieving pain from arthritis symptoms. And this well-rounded meditation practice, including mindfulness meditation and breath awareness within that, this helps reduce pain and improves gray matter in key areas of the brain, like the hippocampus associated with memory. So it's very like the practices offered in the research are usually pretty broad. They're not like, 
this particular pose helps with this particular condition. Like it just doesn't work that way. It's more like yoga as a whole helps you with anxiety and pain management and balance and fall prevention, right? It's not just one pose. So that was a constant discussion with the publisher who really wanted it, of course, because wouldn't it be beautiful if we could have a yoga pose and then immediately after say, here's the research that supports this pose for this condition or for this particular, you know, for back pain for this and that. But it's not like that. So a lot of the pose specific comments that I have are more just talking about anatomy and physiology based off of what we understand and how it would help with that. But a lot of the richest information as far as the research is concerned is more broad. You know, I can't say that this specific thing helps with this specific condition. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And like you touched on this earlier, everyone is so different. So people yeah. might end up with the same condition, but have completely different constitutions and may need completely different things to bring them to that state of balance. I'm wondering if that was another challenge while writing the book, because everyone is so different. You don't want to make it confusing by kind of going too deep into all of these variables, but it is like a real foundation of this practice that everyone has their own practice. Yeah. Absolutely. And I tried to infuse that as much as I could throughout the book, showing that everybody's bone structure is different. Mm. And so if your hips are shaped a certain way, you may or may not be able to do a cross-legged seated position in the same way as your neighbor. Like there's some poses you may never be able to do and that's okay. Or like even just the fact that we all have a different number of muscles and a different number of bones. Some of us, about 30 to 40% of us have an extra muscle, the psoas minor. And some of us don't. And that to me is so fascinating that, that there's so much variance in each of us individually, physically. And so that was a big challenge also in highlighting what muscles are engaging and stretching in different poses. And as we know, like the world is not black and white and, and just like that, you know, I was asked to make these poses have three colors, you know, is what we came up with, mm-hmm. red, blue, and purple. And and our bodies, our muscles don't work in just three categories of red, blue, and purple. Mm-hmm. And everybody's muscles may be engaging in different ways and their own variation of the pose. Or they every individual has their specific comp- compensation patterns based off of how they live their daily life. So certain muscles may be stretching more for them or engaging more for them. So just that variety within people and having to come up with an average or feeling it in my own body and putting my own experience. And I think there's a fear that for me that people will look at the book and will be like, well, that muscle is the one that's strengthening and that's how it is for everybody. When really it depends. It depends on the person. Yeah. Oh, it would have been so challenging. And I really do think that you've done a beautiful job job of illustrating the diversity, but also having that commonality. And yeah, I think that the hard work that you have put into expressing yourself in that way absolutely comes through in the book. So that sounds like it was a really challenging aspect of the process. Was there a really fun part of the process? Like what was your favorite bit creating this project? 
Oh my gosh. I mean, I went to art school. And <laughs> so somebody with a background in art who's always looked at the world that way. Whenever I've been teaching anatomy and physiology at massage schools that yoga teacher training programs in community college setting. I've always had the textbook ahead of me that I like, I like this picture and I don't like this picture. I kind of wish it was a combination of this picture from this textbook and that picture from that textbook. I've always had opinions of, of the images and all the textbooks I've taught from. And so being able to finally be like, okay, I like these three pictures. Can we combine them and also make it a little bit more like this? And then I'd have the best design and illustration team in the world do it. That was a dream for me Mm -hmm. as an artist is being able to like visualize it and conceptualize it and then see it done so beautifully. Uh, It must have been so satisfying Mm -hmm. and it is absolutely the part of the book that I get the most out of because I'm a really visual person as well. And I, I share that fascination with anatomy, but I have so many anatomy books that I actually haven't read. I've dipped into yeah. it. I've got brain overload and I've had to just kind of put it down for a while. But I feel like with your book, it's just such a visual pleasure and a really clear illustration. I think it's just the best way to explain some really complex processes in the body. You don't have to have a knowledge of all of the Latin names of all the muscles and the bones to understand Uh if you've just got that amazing illustration that shows you. I really loved as well how you put an intention at the start of the book. Would you like to take us through your intention for the book? Yeah, absolutely. I have it right here in my foreword, which, you know, my foreword is pretty simple. It's two pages, but I really feel like it sets my intention and tone for the book. So I say this book is intended as neither a comprehensive text on human anatomy and yoga, nor a medical reference book. It is just the beginning. My intention is for this material to spark more curiosity and discussion about the science of yoga and lead to more inspired yoga practitioners and professionals, more rigorous research, more public policies that encourage yoga in schools and healthcare and ultimately more accessibility and acceptance. Beautiful. Yeah, such a great message. Um, I'm just wondering, like, did you encounter any resistance or any negativity along the way from people who prefer to see yoga as being more of a mystical practice rather than something that's scientifically quantifiable? I think that I will encounter that resistance. I think, though, if somebody makes the claim, you know, that my book is just all about the physical, then they're really missing the main point of the book. Because I think the richest material in the book is on the different systems. Like when I talk about how yoga affects your brain and the nervous system and neuroplasticity. And I think that the rich and specifically meditation, a lot of meditation practices and trying to weave in philosophy there. I talk about samskaras and and how they relate to neuroplasticity. That, so that, that imprintations that we have, those habits and how through practice, through meditation, we can break those habits. We can break those samskaras or patterns. We can break those neural pathways that have made us into 
whatever that habit is. We can move past it through practice, through meditation. I think that there's areas of the book where I talk about how the philosophy is affecting our lives and how it affects stress and chronic pain. And one of my favorite sections of the book is actually on some of the research on spiritual practices Mm. and how there's this doctor, Dr. Andrew Newberg, who puts people in MRI brain scans and he has them go into deep meditative states and higher, like higher meditative states, not just, oh, I'm noticing my breath, but like, oh, I'm going into samadhi. I'm going into, he has these monks and, and practice yogis go into these higher meditative states and then looks at the patterns of their brains in these states. And I, I got to talk about the Eightfold Path. I got to talk about the yamas and niyamas in the book. So I think that there's so much richness that I really intentionally wove into the book that's not just about, well, everything has to be evidence-based. I think it's nice for things to be evidence-informed, mm-hmm. where I have this base knowledge of science and the way things work in our current state of knowledge, but I also have this this openness and inquisitiveness to the mystery, to the unknown. Will we ever know what it is to go into samadhi? I mean, even if we have brain scans of it, I think there's always going to be so much mystery to these states. And I really hope that people can see that the book offers both that the, the evidence and the science and also an openness to something more to those spiritual states, to the deep, rich philosophy that yoga offers. Brilliant, brilliant. We love the fact that you work with neuroplasticity and mindfulness. And Joe and I actually had a bit of a a review at the end of last year, and we sort of came to the conclusion that perhaps we've got a, a little bit of an unhealthy relationship with social media and, and our phones and our phones. And it's something perhaps we, mm. we want to change in, in a small way. And we've decided to introduce certain, certain little steps such as not looking at our phones first thing in the morning or not looking at them last thing at night and, and that sort of thing. But we were wondering if you had any small tips that might incorporate neuroplasticity to help out with adjusting to new habits? Well, specifically with the phone one, I've been dealing with that one too. Mm. One thing that I did that has really helped me is, you know, that like moment where you click your phone and you go on Instagram or your email or whatever, and you you don't even notice you're doing it. And the reason Mm -hmm. I have caught myself is because I've been on a plane where there's no Wi-Fi and I try to, my finger tries to get on Instagram or whatever. (laughs) And I'm like, wait a second, I know I don't have access to this. What am I doing? It's just this like ingrained habit. So for me, I have a headspace and insight timer on my main page of my phone. And when I have an urge to look, instead of going to Instagram or Facebook, which I have to scroll several pages to get to, I click on I click on Headspace and I do a three-minute meditation. Yeah, make it that one little bit harder for you to get to and make the more kind of productive option the first thing you see. Yes, yes. But I'm definitely working on that one too. I think we all are. And it's very important that we do because we have to stay connected to that humanity and the people next to us at the you know dentist's office waiting area. Like there's somebody there that we could smile at or talk to and not just be staring at our phones. 
It is a challenge as well, because no doubt having a new book out, you actually need to put some time into social media and into being on your phone. So it's not like you can just switch your phone off and just be like, right, I'm deleting this app. I'm out. I'm going to read a book instead. It's about finding that balance of like, okay, I do need to put a certain amount of time and energy into this, but I want that to be a choice rather than just a default. Yes. Yes, definitely. And for me, I think something I'm trying to do is limit so that I just look at it certain times in the day. So maybe not right in the morning in bed would be the ideal, but like right in the morning, you know, look at it once when I'm standing after I've had my cup of tea or whatever, my routine maybe that day. And then around lunchtime and maybe two times in the afternoon, because I do need to be around it a little bit more, but like limiting the number of times is really helpful. Yeah, making intentional. We loved the section in your book where you talk about the nervous system and it mentions mudras and how they can help develop brain areas linked with sensory acuity and fine motor skills. Would you like to take us into that with a little bit more detail? Absolutely. So mudras, in this case, we're talking about hand mudras or positions of the hand designed to to bring certain qualities. So our fingers, the tips of our fingers specifically, have so many sensory nerve endings. So take a moment, actually, just feel the tips of your fingers. Feel it in your right hand. Feel, actually, go ahead and feel the whole palm of your right hand. And then the tips of your fingers in your right hand. And then your left hand, the whole palm and the tips of your fingers of the left hand. And then the right hand once again, along with the tips of the fingers and the left hand. Now touch your thumb to, on your right hand, touch your thumb to your first finger, your pointer finger. And then open it up, touch your thumb to your second finger and open it up. Feel that point of contact as you touch your thumb to your ring finger and open it up. And feel that point of contact when you touch your thumb to your pinky and open it up. Now just feel all the fingertips that you just touched, the vibrations, the flows, all the sensations in your right hand. All those sensations are always there. We just don't notice them. They're always present. Our mind is just elsewhere. And so I find coming to the hands in specific is this great way to dive into the body. Because there's so many sensory nerve endings in that area. And it's a great way to shift from being in your head to being in your body and in the present moment. And that's a practice that will definitely change your brain. And it's a practice that you can do anytime, anywhere without anybody noticing. Yeah, so powerful. And I'm actually thinking how interesting that my brain went to that right after the phone question. And maybe this would be an interesting strategy for me when I find myself reaching for my phone with my fingertips instead to take a mudra Mm. and to take Mm. a moment. Yeah, that was fantastic. I think we 
probably both went a bit quiet for a second there because we were both <laughs> you were just thinking about fingers. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if just even touching your thumb to your phone, if that could be a mindfulness act. Like when you feel mm. that happening, if you could feel your thumb or your pointer finger touching your phone, if that brings you into your body and able to be like, wait, what am I doing here? Instead of that automatic and then coming to the mudra instead. Yeah. And so, so I've seen yeah. you mentioned that your favorite part of the book is actually the question and answer section. Um, I'd love to know how you compiled your questions. And one question that we found in the book that we'd love to ask you about is the one about what's actually happening when you feel your joints pop. That question is one I had when I first started practicing yoga because I'm one of those people just pops and all the time. And then I get from my students all the time. And actually, we didn't fully know until a few years back, like fairly recently, what is exactly happening. We always knew it had to do with gases in the joint. But we thought that, you know, and I think that most people think that it's it's a bubble popping. That's what the sound is, because it sounds similar to a bubble popping. But actually, we've seen in MRIs, like slow motion video, you can look them up on YouTube, of the joints up close. And what happens when you either like pull the joint or you press it is that the space in the joint is increased, which lowers the pressure. And when the pressure is lowered, there's these gases that are in your synovial fluid. So the synovial fluid is in there to help cushion in the joint. And it's kind of this viscous fluid that's filled with dissolved gases, like, like CO2. And those gases, when the pressure is lowered in that joint cavity, the dissolved gases undissolve. So they become less soluble and they turn into a bubble. So they undissolve, so they were in a liquid format, and they turn into a bubble. So the popping sound is actually them turning into a bubble. And the reason you can't pop again, usually it's about 20 minutes, is because that bubble has to then slowly redissolve back into the synovial fluid. So interesting. And so knowing that that's what's happening in a joint, how does that put us on the point of view that it destabilizes your joints to continually pop them? Like people who say crack their knuckles. Yeah, actually, there has been research that because people are always like, oh, it causes arthritis if you pop your knuckles. And there's been some research, not a lot, but what they find is that it doesn't seem to cause arthritis. There's no evidence to support that that old wise tale. Um, it does kind of make that joint a little bit more like bigger that that part of it can be true. If you pop like one hand, the joint area could get a little bigger, but there seems to be no specific like issues that it causes. There was actually a guy, Dr. Unger, who won the Ig Nobel Prize, which is like a spoof of the Nobel Prizes. And he won it for 50 years. He popped the joints of one knuckle, but not the other knuckle. And he kept data of it. And he found that he did not get arthritis in either hand. Now, of course, that is a very small sample size. N equals one. We can't really make any conclusions based off of that. But it doesn't seem to cause arthritis or have any issues. So like if you're one of those people that pops in a yoga pose or, you know, you feel like when you roll your shoulder or neck, it pops a little, that's fine. Now, one of the issues though is sometimes when we pop, if I move my ankle in a certain way, it just pops, pops, pops. 
And I don't have to wait 20 minutes for it to redissolve. And so what's basically happening there is not what I described before. That has nothing to do with the gas in the joint. That actually has to do with ligaments or joint structures like tendons rubbing against bony landmarks, little areas of bone that stick out. And you can imagine that if you continually do that kind of motion, like some people habitually do it with their hip, kind of like moving in a weird way and it just pop, pop, pop. And it's like a habit there that that would destabilize the joint because it's going to be scraping against the the ligament and, and wear it over time, for example. So you don't want to just like intentionally sit there and pop it like a habit like that. For 50 but years. Yeah. yeah, for 50 years. That <laughs> might wear down at the joint structures. <laughs> I think as well, sometimes people have a feeling that like a joint is actually a bit stuck and like they need mm. to kind of give it that pop for a release. Like what do you think is happening there? I think from my research and from what a, a lot of experts saying that it's okay. Like if it doesn't hurt, and it doesn't seem to cause you any problems, that's okay. It's when it becomes this like uh, obsessive thing where you're doing it excessively. That's when it's an issue. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's some really interesting stuff that we've just learned there. Was there anything else that was really cool and interesting and maybe unexpected that you learned while writing the book? There's so much. I, I know you, you've searched yourself and I did too when I was in teacher training about these sort of claims that people say, like, like when we're twisting, we're wringing out the toxins or this pose stimulates the kidneys. And there's just no evidence to support those things. And if anything, I feel like making claims like that confuses and turns off so many people. There's so much beautiful, true claims that we can make about when you twist, you're stimulating your digestion, you're stimulating paracelsus, helping it move your the food move better through your digestive system. You are helping to improve your posture and the mobility of your spine and helping to, to move the synovial joint in your joints to help maintain its health and your joint health. Like these are reasonable claims that we can say. So like diving in, there were definitely some things where I was like, okay, I'm going to finally figure this out and look it up. And there's just nothing out there for it. There's so much we don't know. Or even something as simple as when you're in warrior two, have your knee over your ankle. It makes sense to me. We don't have any specific research on that. There's nobody that's getting funded to have somebody put their knee in several different positions and measure what's happening. Like that's not happening. But that makes sense to me because I work with people with arthritis and chronic pain and people that want sustainability and their joints as they age. And it makes sense to me to find that stability where the joint structures are getting a more even amount of pressure in them. And so there's a lot of things that like I can't find evidence for, but they just make sense to me. Of course, if you're training to go skiing, you know, you're going to be putting your knee in this compromised position. Maybe you want to, to practice it mindfully in your yoga class. I get that, but that's not who I work with. I work with people that want sustainability of their joints, that want that optimal health and prevention of injury. And that, that's the lens I look through. So there's a lot of things that you just can't find information out there on as much as you try to dig deep. But 
for me, what I did find that was the most fascinating, I think, was what what's happening in the brain, which wasn't surprising to me, but it's some of the most fascinating, mysterious research out there. What's happening in the brain when you meditate, when you go into spiritual states, when you meditate for just a couple minutes, or when you meditated for your whole life. Like the differences in the brain is pretty fascinating there. Ooh, could you take us a little bit more into that? That sounds really fascinating. So there's some research, basically, we know that uh, this is something I just read the other day, like, we know that when you're meditating, the brain is going to be affected, you're going to go into the relaxation response, which means your parasympathetic nervous system is activated, you're in that rest and digest sort of state of the nervous system. And certain areas of your brain are stimulated and certain areas of your brain are turned down. So that's a pattern we know that's like while you're meditating. But we're also finding that that people, when they're not in the meditative state, later on, that they still have a lot of these effects, that their brain is still being affected. So that's pretty cool. There's research showing that, for example, that some people may say that meditation is helping relieve pain because of the placebo effect, right? That, okay, well, I'm relaxed and I'm told this is going to help, so it's going to help. And that's why it helps. And I do think that that's a big aspect of a lot of the benefits is placebo effect. However, there's this awesome study that I love that compared meditation to a placebo and a fake meditation. And they were looking at pain. Okay, fake, yes, fake meditation. So they were looking at pain and they had a painful stimuli applied to these people. I mean, it was not like they were getting electric shocks. It was just a subtle painful stimuli. So one thing is they they had some people meditate for it. And then another thing was they had some people do a fake meditation to deal with the pain. So fake meditation, just imagine this, you're like sitting in a circle and the teacher is like, okay, we're meditating. <laughs> Keep meditating. Good work. You're meditating. <laughs> so there's no instruction, right? Like they're not learning about breath awareness and the philosophy. And like, they're just told nice and quiet, breathe and meditate. So there's that. And then there's people that actually got a fake analgesic cream. Like they were told that this cream would help prevent the pain, but it actually didn't. So they looked at all of those and the meditation actually did the best. That actually helped the most with pain relief. So for me, that's pretty interesting. And they looked at brain scans also, and the meditation was the one that affected the brain in the way they expected to help with pain relief. So for me, that's pretty fascinating what some of these researchers are doing to understand the brain and understand pain and anxiety through meditation. That is really fascinating. And it's Mm. actually something I've read about that it's quite hard to do double blind studies with yoga and meditation because you're obviously doing it or not. So that whole fake meditation concept is like such an interesting idea. I do wonder though, how can they tell if someone has actually inadvertently gone into a meditation? Or like someone already had a meditation practice. So Mm. they're just like, oh yeah, drop right in. (laughs) Yeah, no, they were totally, they totally did not have people that already knew how to meditate in that group. Things up. But I, I did want to just say that I think it's a great 
book and you know a lot of yoga teachers or yoga enthusiasts probably don't have the time the inclination or the training to read all the scientific evidence that's out there so it's really great that you're making it so much more accessible and in a really beautiful friendly way so as i said we're really excited to get a hard copy of this book can't wait i was just wondering if there's anything else about the book you'd like to share before we close off you know i think the biggest thing for me is is knowing that when you're looking through the book there's no one right perfect way to do a pose mm -hmm. you know it was a back and forth between me and the design team like of course we want beautiful poses in the book right like mm -hmm. this is a very visual book and we want these alignment cues but it's like there's infinite ways because there's you know infinite bodies out there to do the pose and i don't want people to look at it and try to do this pose exactly the way it is and i think everybody that's written a yoga book probably feels that way i really fought to have as many modifications in the book as possible but this it doesn't you know have all the modifications one would need. So really, if you're a yoga practitioner and you are interested in studying through this book, I recommend finding a qualified yoga professional, a, a yoga therapist, somebody that has experienced modify it for you. Because this is a reference book and it's not, it's not about doing the poses perfectly. It's about being perfectly okay with who you are in your body in this moment. It's about... It's about what yoga does to your mind. It's about how yoga transforms your life. So I just want people to, to leave from this conversation and also from looking through the book, knowing it's not, it's, it's about what the poses bring you. It's not about the actual poses. It's about the presence from the poses. So if you're in a chair doing something similar to it, that's not even exactly like it, that is beautiful and I love it and make it your own. Oh, it's such a great message. And it really, it really does seem like you have just the perfect person to bring this project to life from your kind of like visual art background and the science and the anatomy and the biology. And then your deep love of working with different populations and working with yoga therapy. I, I couldn't think of a better combination of skills and areas of knowledge to combine into a project like this. Thank you. I really enjoyed making it. it I, I'm looking forward to it evolving over time. You know, there's things that, of course, any author, it's like, I'm looking forward to the next print and the next edition and the translations to, I think, 15 plus languages and, and making it better with each iteration as it evolves. Excellent. Well, you may have kind of answered this already, but I'm just wondering if you could distill everything you've learned uh, through the process of writing this book or through life and learning and yoga in general, if you could distill everything you've learned down to one core teaching, what do you think that would be? Meditation. Just clearly meditation and being, for me, it's about like a, a mindfulness practice of being in my body. Like, resting on my breath and diving into my body. So when things feel overwhelming, when I feel anxious, which is an emotion I, I have always dealt with my whole life is anxiety, worry, perfectionism. Like I know a lot of other people feel these things too. It's like that feeling is there but I can dive into my body and rest on my breath and find this 
through meditation that I will be able to get through it and that it brings me a sense of compassion for myself and for others and really that's what it's all about it's about I think kindness and compassion Oh, it's such a beautiful message. Thank you so much for everything that you've shared and everything that you've shared in the book. I think it's a really amazing contribution to yoga knowledge and also to individual knowledge of who we are, which I guess is also what yoga is all about. Yeah, that's what's really important. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Anne and perhaps got a little taste of what her book science of yoga is like again if you go to podcast.flowartist.com you can see a link to buy her book and a little bit more information about Anne. all right we have another great episode coming up it's an interview with sports psychologist and yoga therapist amy wheeler it's a great conversation and we got the chance to catch up with her in advance of her upcoming trip over to these fair shores so make sure you listen to that one which comes out in a fortnight the theme song is Baby Robots by Ghost Soul and used with permission. Get his music from ghostsoul.bandcamp.com. Thank you so much for listening. Aroha nui. Big, big love. <laughs>